Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Bhutang dhammang sangam namasami I'd like to start by making a dedication to all my teachers. And one of them is Ajahn Suchita. Many years ago, he was my mother's superior. (laughs) When I first came to the monastery in England, there were no elder nuns, and Ajahn Suchita was chosen to train us. So he was our mother's superior. To train in the monastic life is a soaking immersion. It's like a baptism of fire. I haven't been here in many, many years. The first time I came here was more than 25 years ago. And when I walked into the hall from that side and I saw about a hundred people sitting and meditating, and when I saw that, I just burst into tears. It was such a powerful sight. And it's still happening. So this is quite an amazing place. And it's a sacred place. So coming here to a sacred place that makes all of us pilgrims. And then I came back a couple of years later as a nun, a young nun in pink robes. During the time that I was practicing here, Sayada Upandita, who was my first preceptor, gave a retreat and about five women took robes and I sewed their robes and um, Kathy, I think, went and bought the material, bolts and bolts of pink cloth because I was wearing pink. And after the retreat, the other nuns all disrobed and I went in to pay respects to Sayadaw. I was the only one that stayed in the robe at that time and they all said to me, why don't you ask Sayado to make you a bikuni? And I didn't know anything about bhikkhu bhikkhuni in those days. and um, So I innocently went and bowed and, and said, Sayado, please will you make me a bhikkhuni? And he smiled and he said, I can't make you a bhikkhuni, but I can make you a bhikkhu. <laughs> and I understood what he meant. It made perfect sense to me. <laughs> And I'll try to explain it. So I went out to the 
four women who were expectantly waiting for an answer. And I said, Sayuruji said, I can't become a bhikkhuni, but he can make me a bhikkhu. And they were all quite disappointed. But the meaning of the word bhikkhu is one who is far from the dangers of samsara. And it's just a male form. I mean, grammatically. So that, to me, was a very satisfying answer because it was well above anything that they were asking. And I understood it at a transcendent level that to be one who is free from the dangers of samsara is really what we're all aspiring towards. And just having a a particular process happen or being given a title or a name or any kind of attribute uh, of the body or the world is not what will lead us to freedom from danger, freedom from the snares of Mara, freedom from the entrapments of the world. I still feel this way. However, as life would have it, a confluence of kamma, karmic events, actually led me to take that step and undertake the higher ordination. But the word upasampada, which is being complete in the highest morality, being one who is replete with moral purity, but even having an ordination of 311 bhikkhuni precepts does not ensure that I am really one who is free from the snares of Mara or one who has purified my mind to the extent of being replete with moral purity. That depends on the intentions, the actions, the ways of speech, the effort, the concentration, the discernment that I use in my way of being and living day by day, not in the clothing I wear or in any of the conventions that one might follow. They are, of course, a great asset. There's no question. But interestingly, in the Dhammapada, there is a verse which says, four verses, and one of those lines is, kusala, kusalasa upasampada, one who cultivates moral purity. This is what the Buddha exhorted us to do, is to abandon unwholesome ways, to abandon (coughs) evil, to cultivate the highest moral purity, and to complete the way of awakening. This is the teaching of the Buddha. And that was the last exhortation of the Buddha. So the word upasampada is there for us all to undertake as daughters and sons of the Blessed One by striving for that which is highest in ourselves and in the world for each other. And we do this through noble companionship such as we have here during this time. And we do this through um, studying 
and practicing the teaching, but also through undertaking precepts. And then guarding those precepts as if they were the most precious thing in life. Not just when we're on retreat, but when we're out in the world. So this is the kind of immersion that monastic life offers. It, is, it truly is not just putting your toes in the water, but it is going more and more deeply until we get soaked through and through. But we can do this. It is possible to do this in, in life if we have the confidence, the commitment, the clarity, the collectedness in the mind, the composure, the concentration, and the willingness to let go on many levels. Very often, people look for ideal conditions to practice. And here we have just about as ideal conditions as you could want. There's such care and gentleness taken. The, the place is beautifully kept. There are very devoted beings working here. They're very organized, and everything is laid out for us. And in the world, it's not like this. So this is a a good place. We're like plants in a hothouse, you know, where you're you're watered and fed and and loved and nourished, and there are tremendous collection of kalyanamita, beautiful spiritual friends, to help us, to encourage us, and such company really makes it possible for us to cultivate the path and to undertake the upasampada, this high level of moral purity. And because of following the eight precepts, keeping silent and minding our, each one our own, our own path, our own practice, our own business, and not looking around and judging what other people are doing too much. Um, This is an excellent chance to really see what state our minds are in. And so most of the world isn't doing that. In fact, I don't think there's any university, maybe there is now, but didn't used to be any courses available like Meditation 101, when I was a student. I don't know if they exist now. And we were never taught the importance of being aware of holistic awareness in the worldly settings that we're engaged in. But here we have the opportunity to contemplate the Buddha's teachings and look at the condition of our minds and develop this kind of deep, sensitivity to what's going on in our own minds and hearts and then try to develop this kind of awareness where we bring together uh, 
all the factors that conduce to greater clarity and greater purification. And as we do this, what we're really doing is we're emptying out the rubbish. We're very careful in in worldly life to empty out the rubbish in the kitchen, in the toilet, to to bathe, to look after the body, to wear sweet-smelling scents and clothing and even try to beautify the body and the face and all the rest. But how much care do we take of the mind in daily life? And uh, it's just getting busier. And now there's there's a lot of concern to um, reduce our carbon footprint. But I think what's really important, another way of looking at it is how can we increase our Dhamma footprint? How can we widen it and expand it? And so sitting here hour by hour, day by day, at first it might seem just like a battle with thoughts, with memories, with expectations, with assumptions, with mental habits. But if we just bring our attention back to, the, in, to an, a more elemental way of being, as Ajahn Suchito was describing this morning, what we really find is that we're, we're just putting out the rubbish. We're just emptying out the rubbish moment by moment. And it keeps piling up, and we just patiently, very, very patiently, just keep emptying it out. It's an emptying. And that emptying becomes a process of holistic awakening. Because we're, we're waking up to the confusion, to the, the torrents of, of negativity and ill will and confusion and desire that are constantly forcing us propelling us or promoting the ways in which we turn towards reality or towards each moment instead of addressing uh, life as it happens, time as it elapses in front of us with gentleness, with care and with meticulous mindfulness. So to change those habits takes a kind of patience, a heroic and radical patience, which is just about smelling the rubbish and saying, yeah, this is rubbish, and just keep putting it out, emptying it out, moment by moment. Not personalizing it again and again and believing believing in it, identifying and saying, oh, I'm like this and oh, I'm like that. But just seeing it as process, as the floods of the mind, or the habits of the, the carelessness of, of the way the body has been for years. We haven't trained ourselves. We haven't stopped long enough. We haven't paused enough to notice how we are with ourselves, how we are with each other. 
So the purification process is a bit like an ordination. If we subject ourselves, or, or I should say surrender ourselves to the purification, it's, it's a commitment and it's cumulative. I remember early on when I was practicing in Burma, I used to walk around very slowly, you know, the Burmese methods. And one day I came into Sayada's interview room and he said, you're walking too fast and you're not connecting with your movements. He knew some English. He knew quite good English, but he usually liked to translate it. But he told me that in English. And I was so surprised. And he said, not one moment of mindfulness is ever lost. You never lose it. And I thought, why didn't he tell me that before? So many moments. But it was a wonderful thing to contemplate that, you know, instead of worrying about how many clothes we have in our closet and how many pennies in our bank accounts, how much, how much mindfulness are we gathering moment by moment, day by day? These are the jewels of our life. These are the riches. These moments when we're giving clarity and attention to how we are, what we do with our energy, whether we're walking or sitting, standing, lying down, breathing, eating, opening a door. I, I like to uh, demonstrate to people who practice retreats with me how to do walking meditation. And I always tell them, if you're walking back and forth and you notice that you're thinking, then always stop, collect yourself, let the thoughts go, and begin again. But I never see anybody stop. (laughs) And I always say, don't you ever have any thoughts? Isn't anybody thinking? Why don't we stop? Because the world commands us not to stop. Fill every minute with movement. Stuff your lives full of movement, but not mindful movement, just compulsive movement based on greed, based on ill will, or, or wanting and not wanting pulling towards and pushing away from, and being confused about what we want and what we don't want, rather than from a place of letting go and just being watchful, being mindful, being attentive, being aware, connecting, opening the heart. So the the whole process of purification really revolves around hinges on remembering just to see. And the more we remember to see, the more we see without any agenda. 
So we empty out this self, the sense of, I got to find out something. I got to get something from this situation. But just to be with it and to grow into the moment without any kind of personal identification, without dragging in samsara and all, all the things that we create in the mind, all the holding. It's just an unburdening, a constant emptying out. We put the rubbish out. We only come to the present moment without rubbish. As long as we're holding a whole package of, uh, you know, I'm 61 and a half and I, I'm Canadian and I'm da 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 da, whole resume of what we are, then there's no present moment. It's just history. So if we let go of the history, we die. We have to really, it's a death. Putting out the rubbish means putting out our whole history. So then we die to greed. We die to anger. We die to confusion. And that's the only, that, that's the only thing that we really should or benefit from killing. I don't like to use the word killing because it sounds very violent and destructive. But this is an effective thing to delete. Let's use that word. <laughs> so press that little delete button that this is not beneficial for being present, for being with, for realizing the truth, for purifying and emptying out. This, this doesn't help. And then, as, as we learn to do this, it's incredible how, instead of having to create, because the process of having grown this very deeply entangled self that has a history and a future, none of which is real, it's all, it's all just illusion, and believing in it so strongly, we bring that onto the meditation seat And we bring it into every moment with us. And then we have an opinion about what kind of meditator we are, which just fills up the rubbish immediately before we even start looking at the breath. So it's again good to empty out. And the emptying is, it's like making the whole, the holistic awareness is really like a holy awareness. It's holy because it's empty. It's just a big hole. You see? Do you know what I mean? It's like a Swiss cheese. <laughs> it's full of holes. The holes are that we, we're no longer asking the moment to be anything other than what it is. And that's really what makes it holy. I don't, you know, I wasn't intending to make a play on words, but it's interesting that then it does become sacred because we, we're not trying to add anything to it. We're rather just trying to polish completely clear so that the mirror of the present moment reflects the truth within us. Nothing to add there. 
Nothing to add on to it at all. I remember when my mother lay dying. She had Alzheimer's for 19 years and was lucky enough, had the good karma to be nursed by my father. And when she was passing away, the Alzheimer's just disappeared. Uh, Many of you may have heard of cases like this. Um, I understand it's not so unusual, but I'd never known that this happens until I witnessed it. And I found that to be the most glorious gift that she could have given me, to see the radiance of her mind, her pure mind. She was a very virtuous woman and very interested in Dhamma. But unfortunately, this illness took over her mind so that she couldn't spend those 19 years practicing with me. But then when the illness just dropped away, I had the, the privilege of witnessing what the radiant mind is right before we pass away. At least it, that's how it appeared to me just this luminosity coming through her eyes, total cognition, whereas for so many years there had been a screen, a dullness, um, lack of like lack of consciousness, really, lack of connection. And this was breathtaking. And it what it did, it touched that place in me. So for weeks afterwards, I was in an altered state very blissful kind of, like just to have a glimpse of what all of us have within us, the possibility of that that radiance to just be revealed to us, like the great bird that just comes and lands, or the light that is just polished till we, we see through the veil. It's not something that we need believe in, but the more we do the purification from within us, the more we touch those places of clarity until we gain tremendous confidence in this practice. And we know that this is the real polishing that we need to do, never mind the brass, never mind the the adornments of life, never mind the pleasures and excitements of the world, comes a point where they give us up. We don't have to give up anything. Then renunciation presents itself to us as a real freedom. It's an unburdening. It's just just getting rid of what we don't need. How much stuff do we have in the cupboard. Um, Even as monastics in Canada, my goodness, we have a certain kind of boot for the spring, certain kind of boot for the winter. Um, You know, lots of different... Well, you have to because the 
the elements are harsh and uh, we have to protect ourselves but one wants to just you know have a, a tiny little bag that you can walk away with and not own anything because that's how we're going out all of us we're all going going out in a pile of dust or a box of bones or whatever you want to call it and it's not far away that's not a morbid thought either but for those who understand the wisdom of this path death is the least frightening thing in the world because the body we can never cure we can never make the body whole or healed but we can grow our awareness to be whole and healed and holy, holy awareness, sacred. And then just to contemplate in a cosmic way the profundity of the work that we're doing here. Like if you imagine from the beginning of time how many eons have elapsed, how many ice ages or how many galaxies there are a million a billion galaxies never mind planets never mind light years to stars we aren't a blink we're not a wink in this universe we are so tiny fragile insignificant but our minds create a gigantic entanglement of our lives and carry it around like a thick scaffolding around this inner holiness. And we lose, lose sight, lose the perspective of the breadth of what this universe is. And it doesn't make us insignificant at all. It makes our life precious beyond anything because being homo sapiens we have the ability to develop that fine incredibly exalted way of seeing that the Buddha mapped out for us that enables us to comprehend the vastness of the whole universe just like the eye is so tiny These eyes, these optic nerves are so tiny, but they can see the whole sky. You look out at night and you can see all the stars in space with this tiny little... That's the, the way the Dhamma eye can see. And it doesn't depend, that kind of seeing does not depend on the body being anything at all. We can be sick. We we have to be alive. We have to be conscious. And we have to have training and train the mind. And we have to develop that level of upasampada, this deep, really fulfilled level of moral purity, of body, speech, and mind. Mind. 
That's an ordination. That's the the real understanding of what this what it all is that can come to us. Just through this uh, practice of moment by moment, patient, sometimes plodding, sometimes effortless awareness, that we grow and grow and grow until it it just becomes the the breath, the cosmos entering and like a tide entering and leaving these little frail vessels of a body that we have. 20, 30, 40 years old, 50, 60, 70 years old. Until we can free ourselves from having to return again and again to forms. The forms that are the origin of our suffering. And it's a a lucky thing to be able to contemplate dukkha, suffering. It's never wrong when there's dukkha. It is always the, the very beginning of the teaching. There is suffering. To understand it, to understand its origin, to understand the way to put out the rubbish so that we come to the ending of it and then fulfill the Eightfold Noble Path. Then our Dhamma footprint is vast. Then we have noble warming. <laughs> That's the best kind. The earth, the earth has a karma. It arises, it endures for a time, and then it's gone. We happen to be on it while it's enduring. And There's so much fear-mongering about the ending of the world and all this. But what we should really fear is the ending of goodness, the ending of attention, the lack of dedication to the path and to fulfilling it. And celebrate the ending of anger, the ending of violence. The establishment of peace is to be celebrated, but the violence begins here. The nuclear contamination begins here. And we can learn to contain it, to restrain it, to purify it to the point where we're not generating or creating any more rubbish at all. We're just empty. So, I feel very honored to be part of this process with all of you tonight, this week. Thank you for your attention.